This is a Federal News Network podcast. The whiskered federal IT dashboard would be getting a facelift under the administration's fiscal 2023 budget plan. The portal that makes agency technology spending transparent and searchable has not had a major upgrade since it launched, and that was back in 2009. For more on the planned improvements, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Director of Data Transparency for GSA's Office of Government-Wide Policy, Dan York. We went ahead and and actually split it up, right? We split up the the back-end sort of data input from agency-facing from the public consumption, the external-facing. So it'll, it'll wind up being two applications. Of course, the public will only ever sort of see the one. But uh, behind the scenes, there'll be two, uh, the IT Collect API, which will be agency-facing API-only application that is the data ingester. And then the, the front end will be the OGP visualization platform, which is what the public will know is the federal IT dashboard. Right When they go to itdashboard.gov, they'll see all the pretty pictures that the visualization platform has to offer. We use, you know, agile software development methodologies, humor-centered design, iteratively meeting with our stakeholders and customers, testing wireframes, testing UATs, bringing the feedback back. You know, a wireframe is a lot cheaper than a a developer. So making sure we did all the best practices in terms of the U.S. digital services web standards and 508 accessibility compliance. We're hoping the public will like it, absolutely. Uh, Easier to navigate, uh, much improved search capability an advanced search capability that allows you to type in a keyword and then filter down by agency or by cost or by CIO rating or whatever. So if you don't know quite what you're looking for, but you want to see uh, more about a thing, you can search the whole federal government uh, IT portfolio for a couple of keywords and, and filter down. Interactive visualizations, there's a, the uh, agency analysis pages will allow the user to select sort of which data points within a set they want to see and then which agencies they want to see them for, and then sort of toggle on and off. So you can create some custom visualizations or custom data sets within, um, within a range. Uh, so that, that we're hoping will be of great value, as well as the ability to, to access the data directly. So the AP, IT Collect API uh, will have a public API uh, posted on data.api.gov that agencies can interface with, the front-end tool interfaces with, and potentially the public interface with, right? So you can get the same pull of data that the front end tool is getting just by hitting the public API. So these are all things that we're hoping to get the make the data that the government already collects more available, more transparent, more visible, and hopefully uh, a little more ingestible as well. Uh, but frankly, the benefits are just for the public, right? The public is obviously a major stakeholder, but as are um, GAO agencies and OMB, uh, we, agencies will benefit from having a single place to submit the data right through the IT Collect API. No more sort of email this stuff and upload that stuff and max collect for other stuff. The hope is to have one place to ingest it and then likewise for OMB to have one place to go see it so they don't have to sort of hunt around for the data that they're collecting sort of throughout the, the federal IT space. We're really looking forward to it and, uh, and hope the public gets as much out of it as, as we put in. Let me take a half a step back. Uh, I want to start with the agency side. Uh, I'm glad you explained what it is. A lot of people hear APIs, and, and we know application programming interfaces, whatever that is, it's a piece of code. How did you create the API? I'm not looking for the bits and bytes side of it, but I imagine not everyone had the same data standards or, or not every budget system could handle the API. Was there a lot of that kind of backend work that you had to do before you could get to the API? Yeah, there's definitely standards put in place, right? It's like anything else in life. Without without knowing 
how much a dollar costs. You don't know how much you're paying for milk, right? Like, so you need to, you need to have some basis of understanding of, of what the standards are before you can even, even continue. Luckily on the, on the CPIC side, the capital planning investment control side, a lot of those data standards were existing already. And a lot of the, the agency tool sets for, for submitting that data to the legacy site were, were already used to making updates. And so we did actually launch internal to government this past fall in August of 2021 to enable agencies and systems to begin to interact with it in a live fashion. Um, we had actually published the API standard almost a full year before that. So the agency tool sets had an opportunity to, to begin to develop and ask questions and, and uh, we could iterate on the standard as needed because uh, we're, we're in an agile fashion. You know, the first thing you, you do isn't always the, the most perfect. Uh, and there's always ways to improve upon it. And taking that feedback from agencies and from tool vendors on how best to incorporate their changes and feedback uh, was very valuable as we went through the process. As you mentioned, there's a lot more to it than just the, the pretty graph on the screen, right? It's where does the data come from? How does it get there? What does the data mean? And uh, creating the standards across the API, um, particularly along the, along the lines of validation, right? The so one thing an API allows you to do is to is to make sure the data is is of a certain quality. You can't put numbers where text goes. You can't put text where numbers go. You can't have your uh, project cost more than your investment, right? There are certain things that you can have a start date after an end date type of deal. There are certain validations you can build in to ensure at least one pass of data quality that hopefully makes it the data the public sees even richer, right? That, that less, let's try to figure out what the real thing is and, and more that this is what the agency is actually reporting. It's good to hear you started testing this last fall. Uh, obviously it's went well enough because we're talking about it today. Were there some changes, some hiccups along the way that you said, okay, that, that's an area to improve. Okay, that worked better than we thought. Any, anything you can uh, shed some light on? System integration is uh, is always the hardest thing to do, and it, it always comes right there at the very end. <laughs> so uh, all the best laid plans are only as good as until the, the first shot is fired, right? And, and so, yeah, we had integration with, with agency tool sets, with, with on our own tool, tool set, uh, making sure the data we're pulling is what's being displayed making sure the displays were, were calculating the right things, but even, uh, even front end stuff, you know, making sure we're using the right color schema across the site to ensure 508 compliance for, for those that may be visually impaired or, or other such things. So it, it, there's always hiccups along the way. And then you have your normal agency ATO stuff and making sure you're as secure as you can be and firewall uh, issues. You'd be surprised how many things just come down to a simple firewall issue. Like, the site's running, but you can't see it. Things like that. I could only imagine. It's good to hear that. Obviously, things progressed well. How, how big of a lift has this been or will this be for agencies? I mean, with the API, you think it's going to be easier the way you explained it. But do you expect the agency data to get better? Do you expect that the APIs will, will make fewer data calls? That That's another area of kind of the, the, of the benefit of, of the new data. Yeah, our, our hope is as this matures, right? So at Go Live, it, it really is just the CPIC data that we started with in the legacy dashboard, but we were able to expand, it's easily expandable, right? So that we can add additional data sets on. Um, and there is a cost to that, right? There's, there's a, a physical development cost for us, but also a, a cost at the agency side to develop the tool sets to be able to submit data to the API, particularly for those data calls that are now manually entered into a place or emails are entered and sent off. So there is a, a cost to, to getting those systems built and upgraded and, and in place to begin with. But then once they are, you take away all that, that manual low ROI work, right? You, you don't need a person hand jamming XML code. You, you can build that into the system itself. 
which then enables those those people to go do people work and allow the machines to do the machine work, uh, which is which is really what it comes down to, right? Is is using uh, not only IT physical resources but IT human resources in the best possible manner to to be most effective for the agency. So as I mentioned, at Go Live, it will be mostly CPIC, but we're working with OMB and agency partners to identify additional data sets that we can enter in over a period of time so we can build and scale this and really become the spot where the public will go to see IT data. I, I should mention that we don't we don't want to be the one system to rule them all, right? We, we don't need one dashboard that has every possible data set you could ever imagine. But we do want to be the place where you can go. And if we have the data, great. And if you don't, we show you where it is, <laughs> right? Uh, CIS is going to have their own IT security related data and dashboards. I have no need to own CISA data, but I'd love to be able to point you to it, right? Uh, that, that, that type of thing. So the data that we can ingest via API and display, great. The data that is submitted directly to us and we have in-house in our databases, we can display, great. The data that we can't, let me show you where it is. So the, you know, again, agencies have one place to go, the public has one place to go, and hopefully we can streamline sort of the, the transparency efforts. Dan York is Director of Data Transparency for the Office of Government-Wide Policy at the General Services Administration. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.